Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. For the last 26 years, Senior Advancement Officer Jim Pattison has spent nearly every weekday waking up at 3.30 a.m. at his home in Goleta before driving nearly 100 miles to his office at the Harvard-Westlake Middle School campus, and then another 100 miles back home. In this episode, Jim tells us why. It began with growing up with parents who encouraged Jim to figure things out through hard work and perseverance, and continued with degrees from Georgetown and Notre Dame that Jim had to finance himself. And finally, it's been driven by a belief in the nobility of facilitating philanthropy in schools, especially when that school is Harvard-Westlake. On the eve of his retirement, after a quarter century of service, Jim also tells stories that shed light on who he is personally. From the heartwarming story of how Jim met his wife, Cappy, to the story of Arlene Schnitzer, an alumna who faced crippling anti-Semitism on the Westlake campus in the 1940s, but who ultimately made a major legacy gift to that same campus seven decades later, thanks to Jim's trademark empathy and care. Jim Pattison on how relationships not transactions, are the key to advancing great schools. This is The Supporting Cast. Jim Pattison, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, well, I appreciate you making the time at, at, I think, a special time for you. You are continuing to work for RG175, which I want to get to in a moment, but you are a few weeks away from your official retirement from Harvard-Westlake. So I appreciate the time to spend with you now before kind of a momentous event for you and for Harvard-Westlake. So we, we always start with the present to kind of ground us at the beginning of these conversations. Where are you in the world today and how are you? So I live up in Goleta, on the other side, the western edge of Santa Barbara, 99.7 miles away from the middle school campus of Harvard-Westlake. My wife and I have been here for 28 years. 26 of those years were spent commuting back and forth to Harvard-Westlake, 1.3 million miles altogether. Oh my uh, we're doing well. We enjoy Santa Barbara. It's a nice place to, to live, and I am able to do most of my work from home here. RG175 is a search firm, mainly uh, heads of school searches, but I am the person that does advancement searches. So I've been able to do the last three years searches around the country, uh, 34 searches. I'm doing one for a school in New Hampshire, Chicago, San Francisco, and Oakland right now. Well, I want to get to the commute in a moment, but I'm going to put a pause on that for a moment and talk about RG175. Two of your partners there are Debbie Reed and Tom Hudnut. That's correct. That's right. And so they do searches for heads of school, largely, and you are doing searches for a school around the country wants to find an advancement person, a head of advancement, a director of annual giving, something like that. They would enlist your services to try to find that person. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And so I guess it begs the question, what are you looking for? I, I imagine it depends a bit on the school and you want to try to find the right fit for that school. But what in your mind makes a good fundraiser, a good advancement person? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the mission of the school and lining up with the vision of the head of the school is, is really critical. But I think in terms of personal qualities, a person needs to be intelligent, have enough facility and agility of mind to be able to handle situations as they come up, have a good sense of humor. A lot of things can be in advancement, can get fraught sometimes. And so having an ability to, to find a way to laugh about something is important. person who can make connections knows how to, so in a conversation, knows how to find a way of making those connections. And then also why a person's gotten into advancement. Those are all kind of questions about, about a person and who they are rather than necessarily what they've done or what they have. It's more that those qualities of who they are as a person that I'm looking for. And what's so important about the reasons they're in the work that they're in, how does that play itself out with someone with a donor or within an office at a school? Well, I think the, the thing is, I think really good uh, sustainable advancement 
is about making a person, a donor, really feel good about using their philanthropy for something outside of themselves. Uh, they're making them very happy about something that they have, which is their, their wealth, to be able to affect some change, uh, have an impact on, on other people's lives. So I think a person in advancement needs to be oriented to sort of that selflessness. Uh, I think it manifests itself in a responsiveness to donors or anybody, really, any constituent. Good advancement people aren't thinking about themselves and, and, their, and their metrics and how they're measured. And they're thinking about the other person. They're putting themselves in the other person's shoes. I mean, there are plenty of people in advancement who regard it as a, as a, as a job, something sort of a ladder to climb. They're concerned about themselves and their personal accomplishments. But I find those folks not to be that genuine, not that agreeable to be around for a longer time. I think uh, good advancement work is sustained through genuine interest in people and staying in contact with them and getting to know them better and better. The more you get to know a person, the richer and richer you find not just the, the, the material, the financial wealth, but their intellectual capital, their, their emotional capital. And all that is um, really kind of very interesting to, to discover. Yeah, I think that is one of the, I suppose, misunderstandings about fundraising that I find when I tell people that I'm a fundraiser is that there's this idea that you're a pitch man or a pitch woman. And whereas what I've learned from you over the years, you've always said it's far more about listening than it is speaking, that it is learning about the person and then connecting that person's interests with the philanthropic priorities, the financial priorities of the school, and not so much about what you're trying to convey to them. Yeah, I know there's the adage, you know, we have two ears and one mouth, and that <laughs> kind of uh, ratio is what we should be thinking about with uh, the work that we do. We, sh we should spend a lot more time listening to people trying to find out with open-ended questions what's really down deep inside of them. The decision to commit to an institution to or a cause or whatever lies in the middle of our brain. Uh, it's in the middle of our limbic core. We have our prefrontal cortex that has all the executive functions of when, what, how, and where, and all that sort of thing. But why does Harvard-Westlake even mean anything? Why, why is it around? Why should I care about it? Mm -hmm. Those things, those why questions are in the middle of our brain, and, and that's where our trust, our discernment, our judgment, our commitment lie. So we should follow the science of our brain structure and try to look at answering the question, well, why should you even think about this? Why should you even be listening to me? Why would you even think that this would be important to me? So oftentimes when we're dealing with donors, I will say, you know, I've been thinking about what you said whenever, a week ago, a month ago, six months ago, when we met first, and I've been thinking about you and why this might be of interest to you, why this might intrigue you. And people love the fact that you're thinking about them, that you're, you're really applying some thought, some considered thought about them because they're, most people are thinking about themselves. So to have somebody else thinking about you, it's not only flattering, but it's also really very encouraging that there's somebody out there who is, uh, oriented that way. So I, I think that's actually what's made us successful. At Harvard Westlake, when people talk about the culture of philanthropy, I think it boils down to this thing of being centered on others rather than being centered on ourselves. We used to be very, very institution-centric, very transaction-moded. And when we shifted to being donor-centric and thinking about relationships with people and how we could connect and enhance a person's experience and, and make them feel more a part of things. When we put our energies into that and our brain power into that, that's when things really took off. We were doing fine at Harvard West, like at Harvard School beforehand, but we were not in the um, stratosphere that we are today. And I think part of that is because of the 
change in our orientation. You know, that was something that was, I made that observation to Tom Hudnut early on, and I suggested what I just said about changing our orientation, and to his credit, he signed on with that, and there were practical manifestations about how to do it. And boy, I mean, over the years, um, we've had two terrific leaders with Tom Hudnut and Rick Thomas, but all the people in the office, all the teams that we've had, I mean, you add it up, there's about $800 million that we've raised in the last quarter century, and that's a lot of money. I think a lot of that's owed to the fact that how we, we change basically the culture of how we do things. And you talk about big numbers and about big systemic changes, but something that I am aware of about you, when you are on vacation, when you're traveling the world, as you love to do with your wife and or traveling around the country at conferences or wherever it is, you will sometimes come back with small gifts <laughs> for your donors because after having sat with them, you've heard about their interest in a particular sports team or their interest in collecting a certain type of item, and you will come back in your suitcase with some of those items just to simply demonstrate you care to some of these people. And there might not even be a, an ask on its way. It could have been a gift that was made long ago and you're just doing it to say thank you. Those are the sort of little things that I know I've learned from you about how to demonstrate we care. Again, not in, in, in big splashy ways, but some of those small thoughtful ways as well. Yeah, I remember the um, unfortunate circumstance that where, you know, we had the boy who, uh, fellow Justin Carr, who uh, drowned in the pool. Mm -hmm. And it was devastating, right? right for his, for all of us. Um, yeah. It turns out his mom and dad had mentioned uh, that one of his favorite things that he liked to do in art was to draw butterflies. So my wife and I were there at Glacier National Park in Montana. And a local artist had designed uh, these, I don't know if they were paper mache, it was some, it was very, very delicate kind of uh, material, but they were these butterflies and they were, they were different colors. And I, I chose a light blue colored butterfly to bring back. And I didn't even know this, but at the time that was his, his favorite color. And when I mm -hmm. gave that to his mom and dad, that, clearly meant something to them. I mean, it was, yeah. I mean, it was all of about what, maybe three and a half dollars or something like that. But it was the, again, that thoughtfulness, I think that gets lost in our present day culture. Um, people are hurrying, they're, they're going fast, they're not thinking about other people. So when you do something like that, I mean, you've done this any number of times, Eli, yourself. I mean, I remember the fellow who was the big Cowboys fan, and, and you got some cufflinks for him. I mean, you know, it's, it's those kinds of things that people just don't do. And when there are people asking people for their money and they're looking for a differentiator, it's that kind of behavior on our part. Not, not that it's done with that kind of uh, ulterior motive. I mean, but when, when it's done that way, that thoughtfulness, that graciousness, that it really stands out. I mean, it's, it's a way that we can outbehave other people. And people need to know that they're nice people, smart people, good people who are thinking about them. In terms of other kind of small things that add up to a large thing, you mentioned 99.7 miles from Goleta to the Harbor Westlake Middle School. As you are a few weeks away officially from retirement and think about all of those miles put on the road, on the 101, what drove you to get up early to face all that traffic every day for all those years to travel all that distance to come to Harvard-Westlake? Have you kind of put it into perspective? You talk about donors thinking about the why. What was your why? Well, there's a lot of schools between Goleta and uh, Westwood uh, and fine schools. I mean, you know, Kate and Thatcher and Viewpoint, and there's a lot of really good schools, but there's really no school like Harvard-Westlake. And it isn't just the kids. I mean, the kids are, are whip-smart and um, wonderful to have, but it's also the adults that you're around. I, I mean, a school is not just a, an educating place for young people. 
It's also a place for adults to learn and to grow. I'm sure they're at these other schools. They're they're fine people and a good environment. But you know, when I met Tom Hudnut and then the Michael Siegel, who was in the office at the time, then he became a, a trustee, and then the people who we had in our office. There's a special quality about them that is really, um, in many ways, Harvard Westlake is not the real world. It's a collection of people. I remember Tom Hunnett, I asked him, I said, what's your number one job as a head of school? He said, Jim, my, my number one job is to find faculty and staff and students who are worthy of one another. And that really summarizes it, I think, really well for me. It's an extraordinary group of young people uh, with their parents who go to unbelievable extremes, really, to pay the tuition, to provide their own volunteering and time. The adults who are around us and who work with us, I consider myself very blessed. And I don't think that there's, not that Harvard-Westlake isn't, it's not perfect, far from it, but it's an extraordinary place and especially now when I'm doing this work of um, RG175 and discovering schools around the country and helping them, but also earlier when I was working for the different conferences and you meet different people from different schools, you really do get to appreciate the quality, the depth of the quality of people who are at Harvard-Westlake. And that's not a, a given for everybody. You, you, you can work at a place and put your time in, but not everybody is worth it. uh, The great majority of people at Harvard-Westlake are really worth it, and it's worth getting up in the morning. For me, you know, getting up at 3.30 in the morning to be able to get on the road to beat L.A. traffic, to get down to school early so that I could put a full day of work in and turn around and get back home at 6.30, 7 o'clock and be with my wife, who was teaching kindergarten all day long. She's the one who had the really difficult job being in a, a room full of four and five-year-olds all day long from 7.30 to 3 o'clock by herself. I mean, I, I that's a really hard job. But you would also have evening events, right? I mean, it's a, you'd leave at 6 to 7 p.m. some nights. Some nights we'd have dinners until 8, 9 o'clock, and you'd still drive home to, to Goleta and then drive back the next morning. Yeah, there were times, uh, you know, I get home 10.30, 11, 11.30, and 3.30 was pretty early to get back up. But, I mean, um, you know, you do what you have to do. You you learn if there's something that you really want, you figure out a way to to make it happen. So uh, that was a lesson I learned early on from my mom and dad. Uh, I would be asking, as the oldest of four, I would want maybe like a record player or vinyl record that's really going way way back but in any event uh, I, w- I would say I'd, I'd want that or a bike or something like that and my mom and dad who were government workers just would say well then you better cut some lawns or you better do some babysitting or whatever uh, eventually um getting a paper out getting actually a couple paper routes so that i could have the means to be able to do what i wanted to do and um so i think the thing is that you know if you really want something you figure out a way to make it happen that's what it boils down to. And rather than somebody just handing something to you, you value it more when you have to really work for it and figure out your way around whatever obstacle there might be to make it happen. So, I mean, I it's longer now. I have to say, you know, 26 years ago, I, I could make it down from Goleta to L.A. in an hour and a half. 90 minutes, 100 miles in, a, in 90 minutes. I was, I was booking along now. It's two, two and a half, sometimes three hours each way. So it's um, wow. it's gotten to the point where, you know, I'm 72 and it's time for me to stop getting up at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> you mentioned your mom and dad and, and growing up. It's a natural segue, I think, to you, Jim. Where did you grow up? So I was born in Baltimore, lived a little bit of time in southeast Washington, Anacostia, and then we moved out to Silver Spring, Maryland, a suburb, Montgomery County, where I went to elementary school. Funny, uh, now in retrospect, I think about it, it's kind of a funny thing that happened. So I was the oldest of four. My mom and dad, as I said, worked in the government. Actually, they had two, three jobs, each of them. 
And what did they do in the government? Well, my father was uh, responsible. He worked for the Department of Army. In fact, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, one of the things he was charged with was to move missiles from Washington State and Oregon down to Florida. And my mother worked for the um, Federal Rate Commission, the um, coroner's office in Washington, uh, a number of different um, government jobs. She was one of the first women to graduate from George Washington, actually. Um, So she was very proud of the fact that she went to school with President Truman's daughter and graduated from GW and had a a government job. But she would do dictation in the evening. Um, My father was a Fuller Brush man, um, J.C. Penney, had his own tax business. Uh, So we learned early on that if you wanted to make something happen, you had to work for it. And uh, mm-hmm. I think that work ethic that I have came from my mom and dad. Uh, but the story I was going to say was that, so my mom and dad said, look, you know, you, uh, my mom, my sister and I were ruining the fact that the rest of the kids in the neighborhood had an allowance that gave them the ability that when the good humor man came around to uh, go out and get ice cream from the guy. And we didn't have an allowance. We didn't have any money. And we'd complain to my parents. And they said, well, you better figure out a way. <laughs> so my sister and I figured out that what we could do is that we could have church in our basement. So we invited all the kids in the neighborhood. And there were a lot of kids. And we told them that we'd have church in our, in our, in our and we went out and got Necco wafers for the communion and all that kind of stuff. I would, <laughs> I would. Both my sister and I would preach, but the, the main thing was we passed the basket for the collection. And that's how we got our money for our <laughs> ice cream. I mean, we've, until our, until, <laughs> until the, uh, the neighbors complained to my mom and dad. It's the only time actually my mom and dad ever intervened in something with us. But these kids were basically emptying out their piggy banks in our <laughs> collection basket for church. I, I guess that in a certain sense, that was a predecessor for this uh, business of being a fundraiser. Wow, that that was your first fundraising was passing around the basket. I was in the seven, basement. seven and eight. You know, that's what I. And then when that stopped, I, I figured it out that it, maybe what I should do is deliver papers. And um, so uh, we got the paper route, two paper routes, and I remember even with difficult customers, my mom and dad would just say, "You're going to have to figure it out. You're going to have to." You're going to have to go and get the money. We're not going to be there on the sidewalk backing you up. You're going to have to do it. And you learn a lot of really good lessons for yourself. In fact, as I know I'm anticipating a little bit the question here at the end, but I think sometimes parents fail their children a bit by doing things too much for them and not allowing them to figure things out. It's interesting that Tom Hudnut, When we wanted to do something that's become one of the signature events at Harvard Westlake, the the Spotlight Dinner, I was talking to him about, you know, we have all these terrific kids on financial aid, and we have these wonderful donors, and gosh, it would be really nice to be able to um, do something that gives sort of the human dimension about all this financial aid that the school gives. But we've got this issue about the confidentiality of the kids being financial aid recipients. And I remember I had that almost verbatim. He said, he says, well, Patterson, figure it out. <laughs> Just like my mom would say, Jim, figure it out. And you figure it out. And I think that that's what, because we know that, right, right? The kids at Harvard Westlake are really bright kids. I think the kids that really have that chance to figure something out really they benefit from that. What about your schooling growing up in the East Coast? Did you go to public school, private school? Yeah, yeah. So that, that's a good question. So the thing is, my, my mom and dad, my dad uh, grew up in rural Nebraska and never got beyond high school. My mom went to public school. So she was the one who sort of ruled the roost in terms of uh, decisions regarding our education. So we moved to um, Montgomery County from Southeast Washington And we moved to actually a neighborhood where my mom said that uh, it was a public school in Montgomery County. She says, these uh, these schools are really, the parents here really regard education as important. 
She said, you're going to go to public school through eighth grade. You're going to go to a Catholic high school, because we were Catholic. You're going to go to a Catholic high school for four years. And then college, wherever you want to go. And by the way, your father and I are not going to pay for tuition in high school and college. You, all of you kids are going to have to figure it out in terms of how you're going to pay for the tuition, both for high school and for college. So that was the deal. You had to figure it out. <laughs> yeah, figure it out. And in fact, I went to um, a Christian Brothers School in, in Washington, a military school called St. John's, got to college, and uh, my, again, my parents just said, remind you know, you're the oldest, and just remind you, you can go wherever you want, but you're going to have to pay the whole freight. And I had wanted to go to Columbia in the worst way. Richard Hofstetter was a hero of mine. I, I, I love American history, and I had wanted to be at Columbia to go to classes with him. But what I wound up doing was going to Georgetown, which wasn't a bad, I mean, it isn't a bad school. I, I don't know that I get into it now, but in, in any event, I went to Georgetown, worked two jobs while I was going to school full-time, and then I, uh, when I graduated from Georgetown, Notre Dame was just starting their, the Mendoza School of Business. They were looking, it was meant primarily for people with non-business backgrounds. I had a history major. Went out there. Again, my parents reminded me, you know, you're on your own. And in fact, I ran out of money in March of my first year there. Because Notre Dame was starting this program, they were bringing local business leaders in. There was a guy named Jerry Kearns, who was the president of St. Joe Bank and Trust. And he came in. They were big, you know, ballyhoo about this guy. That was 1974, before the internet. But I went down and did some research. And I found out that this guy had been hospitalized with a breakdown, and his wife had sued for divorce. So while he was kind of crowing about all his uh, things, question and answer period, I raised my hand. I said, you know, Mr. Kearns, obviously you've done a lot, but I said, I did this research about, you know, it was in the paper about your being hospitalized and your wife divorcing you. And I said, so my question to you is, is it, is it worth all that? Well, the, the dean of the school, the, the business school, was a, apoplectic of, you know, this really rude question. <laughs> and he danced in the sand. But at the, at the end, he said, you know, if you ever need anything, come on down to St. Joe Bank. So I go down to St. Joe Bank, see a loan officer about trying to get money to be able to continue. And I was up to my eyeballs with loans from Georgetown. And the guy says, you know, you don't have any collateral, you know, well, you know, we can't give you a loan. And I, I remember walking home. I didn't even have the money for the bus from downtown South Bend to where I was living. I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to call Mr. Kern's office. <laughs> so I called when I got back and his second, oh, yeah, yeah, it's Notre Dame. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, Range the time, go down, go through the, the, the door into his office. And as I go through, he yells at me. He says, you! And I, I just tensed up. And I was like, oh, God. And he said, sit down here. And he said, he close the door. He said, I want to tell you something. He says, I thought I had friends here at St. Joe Bank. What your question did, when you asked those questions to me, he says, that was a kick in the rear end that I needed. <laughs> he says, no one ever said anything to me about what I was doing that it was off base. He says, it, it caught me flat-footed, and he says, it, was a, it was a little embarrassing. But he says, I really appreciated the fact that you called me on it. He says, so what can I do for you? I said, well, matter of fact, I need some money. <laughs> and I, I need a loan. He said, well, go down. I, I said, no, I already been downstairs. I said, they, they, and they gave me the answer I expected. I said, but I I need money to keep going. He said, well, what's your plan? I said, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in Chicago. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I said, all I know is I'm going to be in Chicago this summer, and I will get the money I need and repay the bank by August 31st. He says, you don't know how you're going to do it. I said, no, not right now. I said, I'll get a job. I'll figure it out. He said, okay, we'll give you the, we'll give you the loan. Wow. And I started actually as a waiter 
in the Sears Tower, which is now the Willis Tower. That lasted a week, and <laughs> I wasn't going to make the money I needed that way. And I saw an ad in the um, Chicago Tribune that said, Need cash? Call Eddie. So I call this number. There's no Eddie there. I don't know. Oh, I'll take your number down. Five minutes later, Eddie calls me back. Turns out this was a sales job starting at the corner of Wacker and Michigan Avenue at the um, Stone Container Building there on the corner, right across from the Wrigley Building. And the idea was to go to the top floor and sell dinnerware, flatware, cutlery, pots and pans to secretaries in the offices. And for every set that I sold, I got $5 cash. Everything was done by cash. I would meet him at a bar in Evanston on Friday. I'd pick up the stuff at a warehouse in Skokie, bring it down. To, and what I learned when I went in to see the receptionist is I would, I would get her intrigued about it. And then I would say to her, you know, if you can get me 20 other people to buy something, I'll give you one of these things for free. So I learned how to leverage my time. I not only was able to repay that loan, but have enough money for the following year to be able to, and, and more importantly, I learned how I could sell. That was probably the biggest lesson I learned from my MBA at Notre Dame is that I learned I could sell. And then I learned I could sell in the classroom as a teacher. And then I learned I could sell as a person raising money. But a lot of that is, again, owed to the fact you need to listen to what the person wants and what they're looking for. So how do you get there? So you graduate from Notre Dame, you get your MBA. Take me through a bit of the journey of, of your stops in education and what was drawing you to education from selling pots and pans. <laughs> so when I graduated from uh, Notre Dame, I went to work at the M&I Bank in Milwaukee for two years as a portfolio manager, saw that I really did not want to be working in a corporate environment. I went to a headhunter, management recruiters. They sent me out on a couple of uh, interviews with some places, and I realized that there was money to be made doing headhunting. So management recruiters actually hired me to um, be a recruiter, especially in the area of tax accountants and tax attorneys. And I was the number one producer for uh, management recruiters in Milwaukee. I should back up. After the M&I Bank and after management recruiters, I worked part-time at a school in Brookfield, Wisconsin, just west of Milwaukee, called Brookfield Academy. And I met a guy there who I really regard as probably one of my best bosses I ever had, uh, Niall Kardatsky. I had a terrific boss at management recruiters, too, Tom Hurt. But in any event, they taught me a lot. And then a um, supplementary educational center in Milwaukee, was run by a Catholic group, got wind of me and said, we'd love to have you be the executive director and go to bat for us and raise money and run the center and figure out programs for the young people. So from 79 to today, what, 44 years of working basically for educational fundraising. And can you take us through which kind of institutions you worked for during those times? And then there is another story I hope we can get to about how you met your wife, because I know it relates to uh, your, your, your role in education as well. So the center in Milwaukee, I was there for a couple of years. And uh, the same organization, the Catholic organization, had a center in the Pilsen area of Chicago, just west of the loop for Hispanic and black boys, uh, now is for boys and girls, went there, was very successful raising money, went to New York to uh, work for the national organization. They had a school in Boston. That school actually folded. Brookfield Academy contacted me. I came back to Brookfield Academy the second time. This was in 1989. I was uh, director of development, 7th, 10th, 12th grade history teacher, baseball coach, college counselor, dean. I was able to do all this stuff because I was single. and always been single. And a boy transferred into the school from a all-boys Jesuit school called Marquette University High School. His name was Mike Martin. Turns out he and his younger brother, Andy, 
were being raised by their mom. She was a single parent because she had lost her husband, the boys had lost their dad, to colon cancer. In fact, her husband died on a Friday. Her father died on a Sunday, the same weekend. Mm. Oh, my God. So the boys lost their dad and the grandfather. She lost her husband and her father. Anyway, I knew the story. They transferred in. The high upper school head said, Jim, take this boy, Mike, under your wing. Get him squared away. I did. Got to know the family through parent-teacher conferences, basketball games, soccer games, that sort of thing. So when I was leaving Brookfield Academy, the boys took it upon themselves to sit down with their mom at the kitchen table and say to her that we, the boys, we have decided who we want to have as our dad. It's JP. And that's how I got married now almost 30 years ago. Wow. I adopted the boys when they were 14 and 18. We have five grandsons. I have not changed a diaper throughout all that time. Um, <laughs> that would be one of my legacies. And unless as we get older here, maybe their <laughs> diapers are not completely out of the, out of the equation. But in any event, uh, that's how I met my wife. I got a three for one deal. Wonderful boys. My wife really did a terrific job raising them by herself for so many years, but she was very happy to have me come along. And in fact, the anniversary of my adopting them was just last week on June 8th. That's the day I actually celebrate Father's Day. I mean, I know it's this Sunday, wow. uh, the, but the day I celebrate is the day that I adopted them. So um, I'm a very lucky and blessed person, and my wife is um, I'm just very, very fortunate to have that her her life and her story and the boys was placed in my path. And is that how you ended up in Goleta? Is through your wife, or how did that happen? So, I mean, the boys knew I was going to be leaving Brookfield Academy. I didn't know where. I was actually interviewing at the American School in London, Francis Scott Key School in Annapolis, and then Marymount in Santa Barbara. I remember it was uh, the, the people at Brookfield Academy were really trying to keep me. But I came out actually on Labor Day weekend for the final interview here at Marymount's in Santa Barbara. And I had a phone interview with the people at American School in London. And the people at Marymount made me an offer. I came back to Milwaukee and I had actually a breakfast, lunch, and dinner for Brookfield Academy that day. But in between lunch and dinner, I had time to go over to see now my wife. And she says, so what happened out in Santa Barbara? We, we were going out on family dates and individual dates. But I mean, you know, I didn't know. I mean, this this all was happening very quickly. I said, well, the, the folks at Marymount made me an offer. And she says, well, so what you tell them? I said, I told them I needed 24 hours. And she said, uh well, why did you need 24 hours? I said, well, I said, I don't know if I want to go out there by myself. And then my wife says, so what are you really saying? <laughs> I said, so what I'm really saying is, will you marry me? <laughs> As it turns out, she had always wanted to go to California. Her mother wouldn't let her. Wow. This is before we were married. I mean, this is uh, this is uh, Labor Day of 94. And she said, yes, uh, we saw her mom, my mom, got the ring, got the church, got the priest, got, I mean, had to clear her house out. We did all this stuff in the course of basically three days and packed my goods and sent it. I came out to Santa Barbara to start. We got married back in um, Milwaukee two days before Christmas, 94. She came out here in October. I had seen 43 houses, narrowed it down to five. The one I wanted was the one she wanted. We made an offer, went through her house, she came out the day she flew out. By the time she flew out here, she had two full price offers. Everything just went smoothly. And then out here at Santa Barbara in May of 97, a big blow up occurred at Marymount. 12 of the 18 trustees resigned. I came home and my wife says, so how did, it, how did the board meeting go? I said, I've never been in anything like it. I mean, 12 of the 18 trustees resigned. She says, well, what does it mean? I said, well, it's not good. I said, you know, here I am, the director of development, and lost 12 of my 18 trustees. 
She says, so what are you going to do? I said, well, I, I think I got to activate my network. And as it turns out, Harvard Westlake was looking for a director of annual giving. I went down and interviewed and they said, you know, you're the guy, but I mean, you're, you're, you're a hundred miles away. I mean, if you commute, it's a thousand miles a week. And my son, the youngest, Andy, was going to be a senior in uh, high school, and I didn't want to disrupt his uh, high school career. And I said, well, let's give it a try for a year and see how it goes. Let's, let's see if you like me. I'll see if I like you. <laughs> and that was 26 years. And I wow. reinvented myself any number of times throughout that 26-year period. And I think I think Harvard Wesley's certainly gotten their value from me, and I school has certainly been good to me and my family. So, I mean, it's been a, it's been a happy, happy set of events. And, you know, you just never know how things are going to turn out. And during the time at Harvard Westlake, part of this conversation uh, on the supporting cast is about mentors in our lives. Can you talk about, I, I want to talk about some of the work that you have done at Harvard Westlake and some donor stories as well. Can you talk about people at Harvard Westlake who've been mentors to you over those 26 years? Well, I um, I had mentioned my mom and dad. I mentioned this fellow, Tom Hurd at Management Recruiters. Who so at Management Recruiters every day we had to make forty sod calls, sod s o d spins of the dial. You had to make forty phone calls every day. That's a lot of phone calls. If you ever I mean, there's a big notebook in front of you, and I learned how you just had to really prioritize and go at it. Niall Kardaski was a fellow who was headmaster at Brookfield Academy. He had a terrific way of managing by walking around. Michael Siegel worked in the advancement office, taught me a lot about put yourself in the other people's shoes. Tom Hudnut and Rick Commons also falls into this category of the expectation of excellence. And I think the thing is, all those folks, my mom and dad, Niall, Tom Hurt, Michael, Tom, recognize a fundamental fact, and that is treat people as a person, not as a thing. This is especially true in advancement. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes people in our work treat people almost like an ATM. You know, you just figure out the code, punch it in, and you get money that comes out. It's treating people as a thing, and that's really fundamentally very dehumanizing. And I think that all these mentors taught me how important it is to really treat people for who they are. So that gets a little bit to, you know, there are many principles that you've talked about with fundraising that you've just talked about in terms of treating people as relationships and not transactions, in terms of listening more than speaking. These are all principles that you've conveyed to me and others in advancement over many years kind of authentically demonstrating we care. You used the word before, not to outperform other institutions, but to outbehave other institutions in the work that we do. Um, there's a story I think about uh, with you. There are many that we could think about, but the gallery at the middle school is called the Arlene Director Schnitzer Class of 47 Gallery. And that was a gift and a person, most importantly, a person that you worked with as a donor to Harvard-Westlake, she being a Westlake alumna, I wonder if you could tell the story of that gift and, and more importantly, that person. So we were planning a trip, alumni trip to Seattle. And because of the travel that I do, I didn't think anything about going down to Portland, which is only four hours away because there's another cadre of Harvard guys at Portland. But then I also noticed in the giving history, there's this woman Arlene, Director Schnitzer, who was a loyal donor, sending this $100 every year. And I wondered why. I wondered, again, going back to the top of our thing here about the importance of why. Yeah. Here's a woman who's been very loyal to the school, giving money. I called her up because I wanted to give her, th I, I just wanted to say thank you. I said, you know, we're going to be in Portland. I'd just love to be able to stop by and say thank you to you. We got to talking about great teachers and, you know, I was mentioning that we had just put up a thing of Westlake great teachers, including Carol Mills was one of the names. And she says, oh, Miss Mills, she says, I'll tell you a story about Miss Mills. She says, when I 
I convinced my parents to go to boarding school at Westlake. And she said, I took the train down from Portland to Union Station, took a cab out, got out of the cab. Miss Mills came out of the front door. She said, Miss Mills said to me, Miss Director, as far as I'm concerned, because you're Jewish, you're a guinea pig. Turns out Arlene was only the second Jewish girl to, to come to Westlake. Melvin Douglas's daughter was the first. Miss Mills then continues, and Miss Temple, the headmistress, Miss Temple is even thinking about having Negro students here. Go up and find your room. That was, that was how she was encountered. She wasn't, you know, greeted, nothing, you know. Well, Arlene was just furious. And then she went into the, the main entrance and the, and the grand staircase. She put her left hand on the newel post of the uh, staircase there and made a resolution that she wasn't going to let this woman get to her. So this is the kind of the flavor of the anti-Semitic, prejudicial environment that Los Angeles was at the end of the war. Anyway, and, and Arlene worked in the office. She found her file that was about five inches thick because they, they were finding out whether her parents, who were furniture store owners, paid their bills. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So it turns out Arlene graduates and makes a resolution that she's going to send $100 a year with the intention of trying, trying, trying to change the arc of the school. And she tells me all this. I said, well, Arlene, maybe you'd be finding it interesting that now the chaplaincy, we have a, a Jewish rabbi. And um, there's a student who's studying the fellowship this summer about the resistance in, in uh, the Netherlands to the, the Nazis. And I said, and, you know, Mr. Spielberg has chosen Harvard Westlake as a repository for the Shoah. And she said, I find that all very interesting. She said, I'll, I'm very happy to see that. She says, I'll increase my gift to $250. So I'm hanging up the phone. And I should have done this beforehand, but I didn't. I go then and Google her. Turns out she is the principal philanthropist, along with Phil Knight of Nike in Portland. The Performing Arts Center is named after her. There's a, That's right. You know, there's all sorts of stuff. Anyway, long story short, we saved the Newell Post, brought it to her. She broke down in tears. This is, this is the, the actual story. the actual Newell Post that was in the Westlake Great Hall. Right. That when we renovated the campus, they actually they saved that for you to give to her. Is that right? Right. And she broke down. Her, she married a guy named Harold Schnitzer, one of three brothers. They had a special steel company, real estate, uh, all kinds of art gallery. Wonderful, wonderfully wound up. Donating the money for a um, the art gallery, but also a fund to bring artists to this to school. First of whom was Basil Kincaid, an African American quilt maker, and I told that story to Arlene, and she was so happy that her money was being used to educate today's kids in such an effective way. So I mean, that's the kind of thing when the money that a donor can give you can cause that kind of warmth and happiness that's what makes the job all worth it that's for sure well jim before we go there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast they relate to la where you don't live but where you've worked for many years we are known for our movies for our food and for our climate so and i know that you are a movie buff because we've spent a lot of mornings me you ed who talking about what movies we've seen the previous weekend. So I'm curious about this one. What is Jim Pattison's favorite movie? So the name of the movie is called Man for All Seasons. It won the Oscar in 1966. It's a story about St. Thomas More and his relationship uh, with Henry VIII and losing his life for his principles. What's your favorite meal in L.A.? And I guess if you want to... If you want to say it's up in Goleta or, or near home, you can say that too. But if you want to think about something in L.A., that Well, way. I did think about this, and I, I do have a favorite restaurant here in, in Santa Barbara. But I think actually the favorite place I like to go to is the Beverly Glen Deli. I, I met a couple of baseball players, Frank Robinson up there. I mean, it's, uh, all these hmm. celebrities kind of go up to Beverly yeah. Glen Deli and get their food, and it's just kind of fun being there. It's true. I see Brian Wilson there a lot from the yeah. Beach Boys. Yeah, so he's there up go. there. What's your favorite, because I know there are a lot of people listening who love Santa Barbara, What's your favorite restaurant in Santa Barbara? 
Olio e Limone is an Italian place. And actually, a couple weekends ago, I was there with my wife and my parents. Absolutely. Looked into the back room, and I said, is that, is that? And it was you having dinner with your wife and some friends at Olio e Limone. Yeah, so you know how good it is. It is. It's fantastic. What's your favorite place in L.A.? I know you've spent many years avoiding living in L.A., but is there a place in L.A. that you appreciate? So I think the favorite place for me is Dodger Stadium because I saw the the boys win their championship game there at Dodger Stadium. The Harvard-Westlake baseball Yeah, the Harvard-Westlake kid. That was a thrilling game. You know, they threw a runner out from left field. Arden Paps blocked a home plate. They won the game. Boys won the, the championship there. We had a big event uh, with the McCourts there with parents of alumni one time. Um, it's going to be the – I've seen any, any number of White Sox games there at Dodger Stadium, including this coming Thursday. So I'd say Dodger Stadium is a, a place I really enjoy. And what's your favorite place in Santa Barbara? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say probably the, the Mission. Yeah. It's where we uh, go to church. So that's an important that's – an, that's an icon of the city. So lastly, as you know, Jim, I am the parent of a couple of little girls who are four and a half and two now. The last question I ask every guest is, uh, what's your best parenting advice for me? Yeah, I've already kind of mentioned it, and that is, I think, you know, let your kids grow up. Yeah. Let them figure things out. You want to be a parent, and you got to be responsible, but your girls are, I mean, you and Heather have two very, very bright, beautiful girls. They're very, very smart. So (laughs) best thing you could do is let them grow up. Let them figure things out. That's great advice. So I also always end every episode with with a thank you. Thank you for your time, for your perspective, for telling your story. But I want to add with an additional thank you. Just thank you, Jim, for all of the insights and principles that you have imparted to me and to others in our office over a quarter century at Harvard Westlake. I mean, so many of the things that you've talked about are things that we think about in our office, that we say all the time, that we attribute to you, that when we're talking through a situation, we go back to what would Jim Pattison say? What would he tell us to do in this situation? And that even though you're retiring in a few weeks, so many of those lessons, those principles that we think about, so much of what you've talked about today are things that will live on far belong you, you receiving a paycheck from Harvard Westlake. And it's part of the legacy I'm looking forward to being able to uh, point to. Absolutely. Well, it's here. And it's going to be here a long time. So thanks, Jim. Thank you. 